0: O. Palmer Robertson's chapter 14 of uh, Christ of the Prophets, as I alluded to earlier, is on prophets restored from exile. And he mainly is focusing on Haggai and Zechariah here. To help us understand the context a little bit, he outlines for us the restoration of Israel as happening in three different periods of time. So, first is the initial return and rebuilding of the temple. That turns out to be very short lived. So, As the first Israelites come back into the land, their rebuilding efforts only last for a couple of months before they are kind of put down and discouraged by the people around them. The second key time period is the restoration or the second resumption of the rebuilding. And the third is the second return, which is more people coming back into the land. This happens under Ezra and Nehemiah. So prophetic activity does not occur during the first of those two but or of those three but during the second the resumption of the re- rebuilding and the second return is when the majority of prophetic activity as it relates to restoration from exile is taking place. What's interesting and what Robertson really wants to highlight for us during his introductory statements is that the very prophets who predicted the exile of Israel which was a prediction that very well could have gotten them killed also predicted the return of Israel. And this is impactful as far as understanding the weight of the prophetic activity that was going on. And remember, it wasn't even a full generation that passed between the onset of the exile and the restoration. And so there were people who had lived during exile that were then welcomed back into the land. There were people there who had seen the old temple, and they would see the rebuilding of the new temple. When the Israelites were returned in 536 BC, the rebuilding of the temple occurred essentially immediately. And as I just alluded to, there were those who had seen the old temple, and when they saw the foundation of the new temple laid, the young Israelites celebrated and shouted out with joy, and the Israelites who had seen the old temple wept because they knew the glory of the first temple. This is a combination of emotions that is not unlike something you may have experienced. As you see the world around us, God has given us many glories, many wonderful things to sustain us, and yet we know that the promises of Scripture are far beyond anything that we have seen or heard while we live in this world. So, not unlike the young and the old Israelites, we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. Despite this, God has promised them days of grandeur in Haggai, even after acknowledging that the second temple is nowhere close to the first, God then goes on to say that the second temple's glory will exceed that. And so God has given this promise of hope, and yet he will not allow his people to resort to their own devices, their own means. He won't let them rest in the things of the world. Samaritan opposition was the main reason that construction of the temple was put on hold. And then the urgings of Haggai and Zechariah prompted the renewed efforts to rebuild the temple in 520 BC, and that rebuilding was completed in 516, so it took about four years for that to happen. Now there are three things that O. Palmer Robertson, as any good Presbyterian, three things that he wants us to see whenever we're talking about uh, the restoration of Israel. So he wants us to first understand what is the state of the Israelites, what's the state of the people, what is the state of the nations, and then what are the Israelites' anticipations of the future? So if you look through the chapter, those are the big headers that happen throughout the chapter. Those are the three highest level bullet points outside of the introduction that we'll be talking about today. First, we have to understand regarding the state of the people that Israel's return was very meager. So we're talking a smaller population in terms of tens of thousands welcome back into the land. Whereas Israel, whenever it was coming out of Egypt and moving into the promised land, was looking at millions of total population. They are surrounded by threats. All around them are nations who are hostile, to say the least to them. And they are externally governed. So while they do have a governor in the land, they are not a kingship of their own. They don't have a king. They are not a nation able to be called independent of all other nations. So they're very weak and vulnerable and humble, or they should be humble, as they return. So in all of this, the people return, but the community as we had seen it before was a shell. There was no central power that they could look to. There was no feeling of worldly strength as far as their national unity went. They were just coming from this exile and so they knew how real that possibility was to happen again. And from a the- theocratic standpoint, which I mean the laws of Moses, what we saw in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, from that standpoint, the temple did not have an Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies. And O. Palmer Robertson goes down this chain, so to speak. There's, if there's no Ark of the Covenant, there is no mercy seat. There's nowhere to sprinkle blood. During the annual Day of Atonement, there's nothing to cover for the guilt of their sin. Without that, there is no forgiveness. And ultimately, Robertson says, there is no peace with God. So, in his words, without this objective establishment of peace with God, there can be no legitimate claim by anyone that he is a part of the true Israel of God. So the Lord was present, but he was not manifested as before. And we have to ask ourselves, of course, why. Would he do this, and what did it mean for Israel? Not that God was not present with them, but as I mentioned before, that God wanted them to truly understand their weakness, and he wanted the full weight of the promises that he was making to them of the glories to come to land on them so that that would be their singular hope. Given, Given all this information, though, our discussion question Given how meager this restoration was, why would God bother with restoration at all? Yeah, he promised it. Yes. No. It does, yes. The Lord promised it, simply put. Any other thoughts, Travis?
1: Yes. No king of the Jews, no Jesus. No Jesus, no
0: salvation. Good. Yeah, that was a thorough and appropriately cautious answer. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, excellent. So, firstly, God had promised so. God had this covenant of redemption. And it turns out, not only a covenant of redemption with Israel, but he is going to or has redeemed all nations, or is and will, in other words. The redeemer promised by the prophets, first of all, is going to be a king. So there must be a nation for a king. And then just as Israel was humiliated and then would be brought into glory, the Redeemer himself had to be brought low. He was going to be humiliated. So from small beginnings, as Josh pointed out. And then as I alluded to earlier, the promised Redeemer is greater than the temple, is greater than the nation, is greater than the law, is greater than all of the things that Israel had been given, and it was necessary for Israel to realize just how needy they were of this greater Redeemer. During this time, the people of the community in Israel were living in self-centeredness, so they were neglecting the house of the Lord. I would encourage you to, um, of the two books that are covered in this chapter, Haggai and Zechariah, if your time is limited, the book of Haggai is gonna be um, the richest one for you to read because it is two chapters long and very dense with all of the things that we're talking about here. So I would encourage you to go through and, and read that to really get an idea of what was going on. But in short, the people were working hard, but they were harvesting very little. So they were basically pouring all of this money and labor and expense and time into their own finances and God calls them out because remember this is after the Israelites have been discouraged from their first rebuilding of the temple. So now they're looking to their own needs and God says look my house stands in ruins and you're here pouring your money into your own houses and so I will prevent all of your work from being fruitful. They were thinking only of themselves. Even after, immediately after exile, they were coming into the chastening hand of the Lord. The Lord is going to discipline his people. He disciplines his children. And so Robertson wants us to see definitively that the economic failure, the lack of productivity, despite all their work, was not by chance. It's not some economic cycle. It's God chastening his people. And to quote Robertson again, a restored people cannot assume that they will forever occupy the place of God's blessing. It's the kindness of the Lord that brings us to repentance. So we cannot assume because God has brought, restored them, brought them back, that they will then get free and clear from all of their other woes, free and clear from all of their sins, and be free and clear from the concerns of God. But this is good because they are just coming back from exile it's fresh on their minds they know what a possibility this is you can contrast this with the people who were threatening or being threatened exile and yet had not seen it yet their excuses over and over were again we're sure we've heard the warnings we've seen what you've said we know the covenant but it hasn't happened yet and in fact um, someone can shout it out if they know who i'm talking about in one of the prophets God mocks the people because the people over and over again will say, you know, your prophets speak, but nothing happens. You know what I'm talking about by chance? Ezekiel. Travis knows. <laughs> in Ezekiel, I don't know. Yeah, sure. So in one of the prophets, they're called out because the people make the claim over and over again. Yeah, we get it. You're making your, you're making your prophecies again. You're making your threats, and yet you never make good on them and God says, well the time for that is over and your judgment is upon you. But through all of this, the people of Israel show a willingness to repent. Through this massive hardship, this overt discipline from God, which was prophesied to them, they see that the exile is not in vain. Haggai urges repentance and as they were caring for their own houses and not the Lord's house, Haggai urges them to reverse that. And the prophets here ultimately will promise hope for the people, reminding them not only that you know, there's work to be done on the house of the Lord, but they promise them, hey, there is a fountain that will cleanse you from sin and impurity. And in Zechariah especially, they, they speak of their Redeemer being one who is pierced by the sword, and this fountain will come from him. Next, we want to look at the state of the nations. So we looked at Israel already, that's the state of the people of Israel. What about the nations around them? Ironically, after all of this discipline, this punishment, as harsh as it was that Israel went under, the nations around them are at rest, despite their participation in the destruction of Israel. So they're just living life, feeling successful, thinking that things are going well. The nations that destroyed and exiled Israel themselves, those who went against the people of God, are now laying back easy economic prosperity. They've got a lot of land. They've got military might. Everything that they wanted to have, it seemed like they had it. So Zechariah prophesies this angel who asks, Covenant Lord of hosts, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem? And what he's asking is, Why are you just letting these nations be? Why are you letting them prosper? Remember, part of the meager return of Israel was the fact that they're surrounded by all these hostile nations. So these nations, in their vanity, presume their power and their power alone is what contributed to their victory over Israel. It wasn't by permission of the Lord. I I would say that's not even on their radar as a possibility. Our discussion question this is i'm sure come up multiple times throughout this sunday school but it's worth reiterating in as many ways as we can how can god use the nations for his purposes and then punish them for their actions so the purpose of the nations are still sinful Good, so it's not like it was a plan B. God didn't see a terrible thing happen and then come up with plan B to make it work out, right? Any other thoughts? So I always, and I always hearken back to, in Joshua, when they come into the land, I think it's chapter five, they see the angel of the Lord's army. And Joshua asks Are you for us or for them? And what does he say? He says, no, I am for the Lord God. So the question is not, how do we judge sin? How do we judge sin if it went against God's people? Not exactly. It went against God himself. He is the very source of all good, of all righteousness, and we as his children... cannot sit here and judge him by the standards that he himself gave us. But it's not a scapegoat. The Westminster divines again do a really great job of highlighting that the Lord is sovereign over all, and yet not in such a way that takes away secondary causes. So the nations are not absolved of their responsibility for what they did, despite the fact that God's sovereign rule was still active. (laughs) So the nations will receive judgment. God knows their wickedness. He has the power to dismantle every nation. And in his time, despite his long suffering, in his time, he will dismantle it. And the final rest of God's people, ultimately, which has been promised, is going to include the tearing down of these enemies. That's the state of the nations, very brief and then robertson ends with anticipations of the future there are five of these so these are things that have been prophesied and you can think of them as the hopes of israel all of their hopes are grounded in prophecy which is a good place to ground your hopes what has god promised to us and so god has promised jerusalem and the temple will be rebuilt that god himself will return to live with his people Not only will the people return, but many more people will return, that sin will be removed, and lastly, that the Lord's priestly servant Messiah will come. So Jerusalem and the temple being rebuilt. I think it's useful, by the way, as we go through the anticipations of the future, not only to think about how these were prophesied in the Old Testament, but to look and see how they were fulfilled by Christ. In the New Testament all of these things are ultimately fulfilled in him the temple reconstruction was central to the return of Israel as part of their restoration and so you can see very quickly even though they got discouraged just as quickly the first thing they do when they come back into the land is start rebuilding the temple why was that it's because the temple was the sign to the people at that time that God was with them. This was their visible physical symbol, a reminder to all of them, and represented that reality that with the temple, God is with us. Without the temple, we're not so sure. So the temple was this permanent fixture witnessing to the Lord's presence. And the prophets foresaw a temple that was greater than the first. Once again, I'll mention, in Haggai, he calls the people to look at the temple that is before them and says, compare this to the first one. Is it as great? Their obvious answer is no. And yet, in the very next verses after that, he says, the second temple will have a glory greater than the first. So what is he talking about? We look forward we see that Christ himself, among all the claims that he made, which were outrageous to those around him, one of them was one greater than the temple is here, speaking of himself. Not a representative, not a sign of the presence of God, but the very presence of God himself. And furthermore, he made us into little temples. He called us building blocks of the temple which is the living body of Christ, the church, where Christ himself would dwell. So this temple, as the dwelling place of God, points to the actual presence, God among us. The next thing they were looking forward to was God himself returning to live with his people, which is obviously very interconnected with the idea of the restoration of the temple. The way that they were hoping for it, of course, was, well, once we get the temple built, Then we'll have the Holy of Holies. Then we'll get the Ark of the Covenant back in there. We'll be able to do all of the things that we're supposed to do. And God will dwell there with us. What they were missing was this greater promise of the future. And so the the biggest tragedy in the minds of the Israelites, as they're thinking back on the exile, was the fact that God departed from their midst. That was huge for them what made israel special as a nation it wasn't so much their heritage it wasn't so much their laws it wasn't so much their cleanness it was the fact that god dwelt with them visibly so you can imagine when you lose your central identity as a nation that crumbles your spirit it crumbles your sense of unity And this is what the israelites lost in the exile so the reality of the restoration could not happen until they felt that god was dwelling with them because if the harshest point of exile was the loss of that again you see over and over again why it was so important to the israelites to get that temple built as quickly as possible and god called them to it but in their hearts What they're missing is that the temple is not your salvation and the temple is not the presence of God. In fact, as you recall, as we've been going through these prophets, they reminded the Israelites over and over again that God was not limited to his presence in the temple and that he would be with them even during exile. So from true Israel, God did not depart, even though he sent this harsh discipline upon them. The Israelites are also very aware, not only of their desire uh, to have God with them just because who wouldn't want God with them, but they know that his presence is necessary for their sustenance, their life, they recognize all of their success, their power, their rise on the local uh, landscape was because, their rise as a nation was because of God with them, giving them these blessings Giving them prosperity, and so they know. And in turn, to answer the question I alluded to earlier of how is this and or how is this fulfilled in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is sent to be with each of us as a physical presence of God. And remember, we as believers are the building blocks of the church. We are members of one another. We are members of the body of Christ, and we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The next promise, which the Israelites are looking forward to, is that many more people will return. And this was something that was very difficult, I imagine, for the Israelites to untangle. So swept up were they by their identity that came through Abraham, by their heritage, that... It was very difficult, I imagine, for them to understand what exactly it was that the prophets were telling them. The prophets even issued summons for a return of the people into the promised land from Assyria and Babylon, which were no longer nations at the time, but you remember that when these nations did exist, they were not exactly friendly to Israel. They played a role in the destruction of Israel, they were constantly looming over them, and... They were, in fact, a constant temptation for Israel to turn from God and to trust, as the prophets say, in the horses and the power of Egypt. So it wasn't like these nations were something that was cousins with Israel, side by side with them as the people of God. And yet the prophet issues a summons because he wants us to understand that The people of God are not only going to come from Abraham, remember Christ says if he wanted to make sons of Abraham, he would make them out of the rocks, but God has called people from all nations and they're using these sinful nations even to show us how dramatically this point can be made. And it should be a reminder, first of all to us, Paul gives us this reminder very strongly in Romans that we... Are not original. We are not part of the original people of God. That we come in as great sinners, and it should be a reminder to Israel that they too were welcomed not because of some merit, but because they were the same as Assyria and Babylon, great sinners welcome in by grace. God promises that the wealth of all nations will come to Israel. You see this language used very commonly. That. God is going to shake the nations. You almost imagine him upturning a coin purse and shaking out, and that all of the gold and the silver of the nations, all of the desirable things of the nations would come to God. And it is well within his power to do this. Zechariah says, many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the covenant Lord of hosts. So he is not afraid to make this claim overt, that people from all over the world will come looking. And then lastly, this culminates, Paul unveils this mystery, which, as I said, must have been so difficult for them to fathom what was going on. Paul unveils it for us in Ephesians. Through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. This is the unveiling of that mystery, that all peoples would be welcomed together, Gentiles and Jews, as heirs together sharing in that with Christ. Lastly, no, next to last, sin will be removed. This is obviously a great hope. Sin was a central reason for the exile. God told them over and over again how they had broken the covenant, and this covenant response to sin was something that was part of that promise. When the Israelites sinned, they were promised judgment, and so We've heard this many times, but remember that the exile of Israel was not a breaking or a canceling or a falling apart of his covenant. It was a fulfilling of the covenant of God and um, led to something much greater. So to be with God requires not only justice, but cleansing. We see in Christ, for example, that Christ not only came and made right all of the sins that we had done. So he died on the cross and paid the price for every sin that we committed. But it's not only that, it's not only the justice, but it's the perfection that Christ meets for us every day. Not only did he pay the price for what we did, he also did what we could not do. The exile proves the insufficiency of the annual Day of Atonement because what it shows is, despite the fact that that Day of Atonement was happening, despite the fact that blood was being shed for the entire nation, exactly as God had prescribed it to be so, the sins of the Israel were still on their heads. There was nothing that it did to actually remove it permanently from their vision. And this permanent removal and the provision of cleansing is prophesied very clearly by Zechariah, also in Haggai, but much more clearly in Zechariah, And just to really hit home how powerful this is, once again in Haggai, God calls out, hey, if you're carrying around something holy in your robe and you touch something unclean with it, does the holy thing make it clean? And they say no. On the flip side, if you yourself are unclean and you touch something that was unclean, or sorry, if you touch something that was clean, what happens? it becomes unclean so the holy will not purify the unclean but the unclean taints that which is clean what do we see in Christ going around healing the diseased touching them and not himself being made unclean but rather cleansing all impurity so in Christ was this perfect purification unmatched by anything in the mosaic law unmatched by anything that Israel had ever seen, where the emphasis had always been on uncleanness, on maintaining purity, on taking time to remind yourself how you are set apart and far off from God. And now through Christ, he purifies, he draws us near. He is the one who cleanses everything that is unclean. So the paradigm brought by Christ is such a mighty reversal of everything that we had seen before and yet a fulfillment of all of it continuous with all of it not set apart not random and lastly we've been talking about christ this whole time but the last hope that we see is that the lord's priestly servant messiah will come and this promised savior just as a reminder the promise of a wounded savior starts not with the prophets but starts all the way back in genesis when we are told that there will come a seed who will crush the head of the snake, but in turn, he will have his heel stricken. So over and over again, the failure of the kings, we talked about how inadequate the sacrifices were, all of this points to the need for something greater. Both Haggai and Zechariah focus on Zerubbabel as a descendant of the Davidic line, and he's a type of Christ. But what's interesting about him is he's not a prophet, a priest, or a king. He is a governor over Israel, so yes, a ruler. But remember, they do not have their own kingship, and they are not acting independently as a nation. In Haggai, Zerubbabel is referred to as God's servant, his signet ring, which is the thing that puts the sign on something. He is God's chosen one. In Zechariah, he is the temple builder. He is designated as Zion's king, despite the fact that he is not a king. And he is called to establish righteousness, where humility and proclaim peace. All of this prophesied by Zechariah. The power, Robertson says, of choosing Zerubbabel and not the high priest of the time is that God was calling out someone so lowly someone who was not intrinsically a part of this priestly system and raising him up out of humility as the savior or a savior figure. Of course, he still is part of the Davidic line, and so that's consistent. But when Zechariah is talking about him, he calls out to Zerubbabel. First, he says, become shepherd of the flock, doomed to slaughter. He calls to the people, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. About as clear as it gets, I would say. You Zechariah, furthermore, they say they weighed out my wages as 30 pieces of silver. So Christ rode in on a donkey. Christ's wages, so to speak, or actually the price for his head was 30 pieces of silver. And then most striking probably to the people at the time was... Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. So this is a pretty straightforward question, but why is the sword turned against God's own shepherd? Mm-hmm. Hmm. That's an interesting thought. I like it. Yes, Travis? And remember, before this, great answer, thank y'all. Before this, he is called to become shepherd of the flock doomed to the slaughter. The flock has already received their judgment, or they have not received their slaughter, but they know what's coming. And then the shepherd himself is called to take on that judgment, to be the federal head, so to speak, just as Adam represented us so the shepherd now represents us, receives our judgment. And I'll end with this long quote from Robertson. Who is this shepherd? He says he would be an anointed king of the line of David, but he would also be a priest. He would in fact serve as a sacrificial priestly king on his throne. Rather than entering the throne room of the Lord only once a year, he would remain permanently seated with God on his throne. By the combined authority invested in him as Israel's high priest and reigning king, he would build the temple of the Lord. And one day, those who are far away will come and join this exalted messianic priest king in the building of the temple of the Lord. All very high language, relying on the language of the prophets to say, everything that God gave us in the Old Testament, prophets, priests, kings, was given to us so that we might understand who Christ is that he would come that he would fulfill all of these roles that he would be the one who makes us clean that he would provide the fountain that purifies us and that he would be the one who would be our only hope just as Israel was exiled we are now exiled in this world and Paul reminds us it's only for a short short time so in all of this on the other side of the exile the prophets are telling Israel look to Christ And that's what we say now to one another. Look to Christ. Any last thoughts, questions? Let's pray.